down here meet uh, Alicia. You got it? You got help? You're going to need it. People have been bored, bored, bored in this town. All right, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 4 this morning. Um, we'll keep working on that song. We wanted to, to get it in today, even though it was time change and all that good stuff, just because uh, it's such a beautiful song. It's such a wonderful song that, that we want to be able to sing uh, during Easter uh, on that Sunday morning in particular. And so we'll keep working on it. Uh, you can look it up. Mariah did post it on our social media this week. Uh, like I said, it's beautiful. And it just comes straight from Scripture. Uh, in fact, next week we'll be looking at the Scripture that it came out of. So Revelation chapter 4, and if you would, please stand this morning as we honor the reading of God's Word. Chapter 4, verse 1, John says this. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were, as it were, there, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth, li fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who was seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day and for all you've given us. Thank you for your scripture. Uh, Father, thank you for what this scripture does. Father, we do not serve a weak God. We serve a powerful, holy God. And he's not just holy. He's three times holy. Holy, holy, holy. I pray today that we would leave this place with a bigger picture of this God than what we brought in here. Thank you that... It, the reason we get to be in the presence of this God one day is not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done to make a way for us to be there. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So last week, uh, we, we, we concluded the, the letters to the seven churches, all right? Now, now here's where it, it kind of starts getting bizarre and, and really, really weird, right? And here's where a lot of people begin to make a mistake when it comes to interpreting Revelation. 
Because what they do is they now shift their focus from the letters to the prophecy as if John all of a sudden forgot that he was addressing a group of people. Right? Remember, this, this, this book was written to these seven churches. So John is still addressing these churches. It's not as if he's forgot about these churches and then just moved on down the road to future events. So we cannot make that mistake as a church. As Matt Chandler says, Revelation was written to them for us. Right? To them for us. So think about it this way. As the courier would take the letter to each church, the content of the whole book of Revelation would be read to each church, right? It's not as if they stopped and then said, well, now let me tell you about these historical things that are gonna happen. No, he's reading the content of the whole book to the church. And all that's, being, all that's happening here is that we're shifting to a different aspect of the vision that John received. Revelation's organized into seven sections, each presenting the church age from God's perspective in heaven. And so the mistake that many people make is they want to read Revelation as it's this continuous history from chapters 1 through 22. But it doesn't make any sense if you do it that way because there's some bizarre things and there's some things that don't line up. So it makes much more sense if we read it as parallel depictions of history, each with its own perspective. And I'll continue to explain this a little bit more as the book goes on, but I want you just to remember this. It was written to them for us. So he's still addressing these seven churches in the Roman Empire as we move to this section of the prophecy. Now, 1939, Mary Baker was a wonderful teenage girl, and um, it was her birthday this week, triple digits, man. It was a big week for Mary. Um, <laughs> but there was a new movie in the theater, so she was excited to go, right? And so she walked in to see The Wizard of Oz. Now, many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz, and so you kind of know the premise of the movie, but we have Dorothy, who's living in boring old black and white Kansas. Tornado comes in, and it whisks her away to full-color, beautiful, amazing Oz. And as wonderful as Oz is, as beautiful as Oz is, Dorothy still decides, hey, I, I want to go back home. I want to go back to Kansas. So she sets out on the yellow brick road to the Emerald City where she's told the Wizard of Oz resides and the wizard's powerful and the wizard will be able to get her back home. Along the way, she meets her friends. She meets a tin man who needs a heart. She meets a lion who lacks courage and she meets a scarecrow needing a brain. And they finally make it to Oz. They meet the wizard. And they're terrified, right? Do you remember that scene? They walk in and there's flashes of light and smoke and thunder and the wizard's voice is booming when they come in the room. But then Toto breaks away and Toto goes and he grabs the curtain and he pulls it aside and what do they see? Do you remember? They see a little old man behind the curtain, right? What you think about it, this was an indictment against God, okay? Think about that, right? That, that God is not really there. He's not really what we think he is, so... No, no, yeah, you're going to watch it different now. You're going to be like, oh, you just ruined it for me. But that's what he was getting at. And there's a little old man. He's pulling levers and he's speaking into a microphone. And so they find out that the wizard's fake. And so because the wizard's fake, he can't grant their wishes. But luckily for them, what happened along the way? They ended up saving themselves, didn't they? They ended up saving themselves. 
So the tin man realized that he actually did have a heart. He did have compassion. The, the lion found his courage. The, the scarecrow demonstrated his ability to think. And all they needed was for the wizard to come out and certify their accomplishments. Do you remember that? What did he tell them? And you had it in you all along. It was just right there. You, you had the ability to fix and to save yourself. It's the perfect parable of self-reliant American individualism. Dennis Johnson puts it this way. He says, people who can fix themselves are not easily impressed by anyone who presents himself as bigger or better than they are. And I think the Wizard of Oz still describes the American attitude towards God. In the place of God, man sees himself on the throne now. The self in our society has become the main form of reality, has it not? The, the self is what life is all about. We've, we've been over this before. Number one section in the bookstore, self-help, right? Go to Instagram. I was reading uh, an article this week that the number one, like, uh, the, like the, the, the people that have the most followers on Instagram are self-care people that tell you how to treat yourself, right? How to take care of yourself. Like they're the number one influencers right now. Self-help, self-care, taking care of me. It's all about me. Like I, it's how I feel. It's what I want to do. We see it in the craziness that we see around us in the gender confusion. It's how you feel. What you want to be is that we have put ourselves on the throne, that we're what life is all about. And listen, as Christians, we're not immune to this either, are we? I mean, think about how often, like, think about how we read our Bibles a lot of times. We read our Bible, and, and, and the main mistake a lot of us make is that we try to put ourselves into the stories, don't we? I've been over this before, but one of the big things we like to do is we like to take David in the story of David and Goliath, and we want to read that story, and we want to go, I'm David, right? That that's me, and that I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to go conquer the giants that are in my life. And so I'm going to go down to the, the stream. I'm going to get my five stones and as one author said, those five stones are gratitude, prayer, priority, passion, and persistence. And I'm going to use those five things. I'm going to apply them to my life. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to conquer any giant in my path. When that story really isn't about you at all. See, David points us to a true and better David. David points us to Jesus Christ, who's the only one who could truly slay the giants that matter the giants of Satan, sin, and death. If you want to see yourself in that story, I guess that's okay, but you would be the Israelites up on the cliff doing nothing while David does all the work. See, what Revelation 4 does for us is it shows us a big, powerful God. It's as if Toto runs up and he pulls back the curtain and instead of seeing a little old man, there is a powerful, omnipotent, sovereign God who is reigning over the world. Revelation chapter four and five shows us that life is not about us. Instead, it's about this big, holy creator God. So look with me, if you will, in Revelation chapter four. Let's look at verses one through four. So John says, after this, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne 
And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now you can underline that, that phrase there in chapter four and verse one that says, after this, right? These two words don't mean that the events of chapter four and five occur after the events of chapters one through three. Rather, these words indicate that the vision of Revelation four and five came to John after the vision of Revelation one through three. So in other words, these visions are not in historical order but they're in the occurrence of their events, in the order that they happen to John. And so Jesus says, come up here, and I will tell you what must take place after this. And again, this doesn't refer to the distant future, as a lot of people want to argue, but it refers to events between the first and second comings of Christ. So events that happened during John's own time, events that have happened throughout history, events that will happen in our time, all culminating in the return of Christ. And so at once, John is in the spirit and he sees the throne and seated on the throne is the triune God. And you can't read these verses like you would a newspaper. You can't read these verses like you would a novel. You can't read these verses like you would even read the book uh, of Romans. Because what we're confronted with are the limits of human language when it comes to describing God. We, we can't do it. Right? Do you guys remember in Exodus chapter 3, 20, uh, 33, Moses is up on the mountain, right? And if you've grown up in church in Sunday school, you know this story. And he's up there, he's talking to God, and all of a sudden, he's like, God, I want to see your glory. Like, I want to see you. I want to see what you look like. And God's like, dude, you can't do that. I mean, you do that, you're dead. But, but I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. Like, I'm going to pick you up. I'll put you in the cleft of this rock. I'll kind of hide you. I'm going to pass by you, and then I'll tell you after I've walked by that you can see my backside. Y'all remember that story? And Moses does. Moses sees his backside and then Moses comes down the mountain and what's he doing? He's glowing. This vision of John's is the closest that you and I, this side of heaven, will get to see God with our own eyes. And what I need you to understand is that what we're about to read are symbols, not photographs to show us what God is like, okay? They're symbols, not photographs to show us what God is like. Now, that's not to say that John did not literally see these things. He did. He literally saw these things, but what he's doing is describing the symbols he's, he saw that were designed to make visible the invisible God. Okay? Does that make sense? The symbols he saw were designed to make visible the invisible God. And so he starts with the throne, and then what he does is he works his way out from the throne. And the first thing he says is the Lord had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. So jasper is an opaque stone. It's red, but it can also be yellow. It can also be green and grayish blue. Later on in the book of Revelation, Jasper is going to be connected with the glory of God. In Revelation 21, 11, as the new city of Jerusalem comes down, it says that it has the, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a Jasper, clear as crystal. Carnelian's a red stone. It's very similar to uh, a ruby. And it evokes the images of divine jealousy, right? That God is a jealous God. He will share his glory with no other. 
but it also evokes righteous wrath. And what you notice is, is after that, we see surrounding the throne this beautiful explosion of light, and from this light, we get a rainbow. And so the rainbow reminds you and I of God's faithfulness, of the covenant that he made with Noah, that he would never destroy the earth again with water, but it's also a reminder of the new creation. That new creation was inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, that new creation will officially be consummated. It will be here forever and ever and ever. And then moving out further from the rainbow, we see 24 thrones and 24 elders with white robes and golden crowns. Now there are several interpretations to what these 24 elders are and what it means, but I'm just gonna tell you the one I think it is for time's sake. First, the elders are most likely some angelic order. In Revelation chapter five, we're told that they bring the prayers of the saints, that would be us, before the Lord. Revelation 5, eight says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So there's some sort of angelic order that, that takes our prayers to the Lord. But then the number 24 refers to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles in the New Testament church. So in other words, they're there as a representative of the community of the redeemed, of the saved from both Testaments. It's, it's a representation of God's church. And I want you to notice what they're clothed in. What are they clothed in? White robes and golden crowns. Now remember, it was written to them for us. So it was written to these seven churches for us. How many times did Jesus tell these seven churches that to the one who overcomes, he'll give them what? White robes and golden crowns. See, he's letting these churches know, he's letting you and I know that Jesus will give us what he promised, that he is the faithful and true witness, that Jesus never lies, and so that when he tells us something, we can take that to the bank because we, he will follow through on it. And so what I want you to do is just stop right there and think of the application for this in your life. So, so the next time that you or I are tempted to give in to sin or compromise with the world, and whatever that is, right? Every one of you got something in here, that one thing that will trip you up, right? Whether uh, it's lust or drink or substance or uh, money or just anger or pride or on and on we could go. That thing in your life that you know about that I may not know about or anybody else might not know about, the next time you're tempted to give in to that thing, ask yourself, is it worth it? I mean, is, is it worth it? Is it in, worth giving into this thing that'll bring temporary pleasure, right? Something that'll, that'll only last for a moment. Or are the promised white robes and golden crowns worth more to you than the compromise? See, we need to pray for an overwhelming desire to conquer and to gain our reward. And, and there's not one of us in this room that are there yet, right? But over time, as we walk with the Lord and as we read his word and as we fall more and more in love with him, we can begin moving in that direction. We, we can begin to catch ourselves in those moments of temptation and say, okay, Lord, you know what I feel right now. But conquering and overcoming and receiving the promised reward is worth more to me than giving in to this thing that won't last. And the last thing these 24 elders do is they should be a reminder to every one of us in this room, 
okay? That when we gather in here weekly to worship the Lord, it should point us to our heavenly existence and our identity that we have before the throne. That's part of what corporate worship is about, is to remind ourselves that there is a place that we will be one day as God's bride, and we will worship him forever and ever and ever. That's why it's so important that we continue to gather. That's why it's important that we get in here beside one another and sing songs like, is he worthy? Because one day, that's what we will be doing forever and ever. Verse five. He says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there, were, there, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. This, this phrase is going to be repeated throughout Revelation in chapter 11, or 8, 11, and 16. We will see that again. And every time this phrase is repeated, it has to do with judgment. It's also evoking the image of Mount Sinai. Do you remember when the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai and God's glory descended on Mount Sinai? What was there? Rumbles and peals of thunder and lightning. It was a very scary moment. And also the judgments that will come from the throne are also going to be similar to all the judgments that came in the book of Exodus. So God is a judge, remember, written to them for us right? To these seven churches for us, God as judge would have been an assurance to these seven churches. How many of them were suffering persecution? How many of them had the boot of the Roman empire at their neck? So this would have been a, a comfort to them that God had not forgotten them, that God had not forgotten their persecutors and that God would judge those who hurt his church. And the seven torches and the seven spirits, it's just a symbolic number. It means perfection. It symbolizes the perfection of the Holy Spirit. It symbolizes the perfection of God the Father, that he is complete in and of himself and that he needs no one else. And before the throne, he says, there's a sea of glass. Now, I love the imagery of the sea, and I, I want you guys to catch this. The imagery of the sea is so wonderful because this is the heavenly version of the Red Sea. If you go to Revelation chapter 15, verse 2, the saints, those who overcome the church, are pictured on the other side of this sea. And on the other side of this sea, we're standing there and we're singing the song of Moses, the song that Moses sang after they took the children of Israel across the Red Sea. In other words, it's symbolizing to you and I that one day we will leave our Egypt. This world is our Egypt. It is not our home. We are going somewhere else. We will cross over that sea one day and we will enter into the promised land and we will sing the song of Moses. That's a comfort. That would have been a comfort. Again, to them, for us, those seven churches would love to have heard that, listen, one day they will cross over. One day they will be with the Lord in the promised land. But also the sea in the Bible and, and honestly throughout most of history, you can go back and read historical books and, and things about uh, men that sail at sea is that the sea was often called the abyss. And it was a very scary thing. It was a frightening thing. It was believed to be a place of chaos. It was believed to be a place where the sea monster would dwell. In Revelation chapter 13, the beast that we'll look at is said to have come from the sea. But notice the sea in heaven. Is it chaotic? Is it out of control? It's calm. 
It's steel as glass. G.K. Beale says that this is the calming of cosmic D-Day, wherein the saint's redemption from the devil is accomplished. The devil's final, complete defeat awaits mopping up operations by the saints and Christ's final coming in judgment at the end of history, the final V-Day. So in other words, no matter how crazy it gets on this earth, it's calm in heaven. The sea is still. God is not moved because he's already won. That ought to cause you to rejoice. I've had so many texts and calls and people uh, worried and concerned about the Equality Act, right? Many of you have read about that. Many of you know what I'm talking about. We're worried about it in terms of threats to religious liberty and what it's going to do to our kids and so forth and so on. And, And I would agree with you. It is scary and there's a lot to think about in it. But listen to me on this. It may get wild. It may get crazy and it may test our resolve, but our creator is not concerned in the least bit. He's got everything under control. The sea may be wild down here on this earth right now as we're like, I don't even know. I can't even keep up anymore with the way the culture and society is going. But in heaven, the sea is calm. And when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, guess what? There's no longer a sea. The sea's gone. All we have is a calm river. Revelation 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So in other words, Christian, do not fear. Hey, uh, real quick, would somebody let this guy in at the back door? Sorry about that. Young man stepped out, can't get back in. Um, God has not lost control. It may be crazy here, but it's calm in heaven. And then moving out further around the sea, there's these bizarre creatures. Now, Revelation chapter 4 and Ezekiel chapter 1, you can read it when you get back home, are almost mirror images of one another. They're almost identical in their depiction of the throne room of God. Ezekiel has shown this vision. And what's funny is if you read that, you'll find out throughout most of history, rabbis have struggled with what to do with Ezekiel, and in particular, Ezekiel chapter 1. A lot of rabbis would even argue that it didn't even need to be in the Bible. One rabbi was said to have burned over 300 barrels of oil staying up trying to figure out what Ezekiel chapter 1 meant. Well, he didn't have the New Testament, right? We read the New Testament in light of the Old, and so Revelation chapter 4 and Ezekiel 1 are identical. Ezekiel's vision was to display the sovereignty of God in a time uh, of chaos, in a time of persecution, Revelation chapter 4 is doing the exact same thing. Remember, written to them for us. He was trying to show them God's sovereignty in a time of difficulty, in a time of chaos, in a time of persecution. And so these creatures have eyes in front and back, and they look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now, everybody argues over what this means, but, but most likely they're designed to suggest qualities in the God that they serve. So the lion would be pointing to God's royal power. The ox would be a symbol of God's strength. The man would be a symbol of God's intelligence. And the eagle embodies God's swiftness of action. The eyes on the front and the back and all around, they symbolize the fact that our God sees all. That there is nothing hidden from God's sight. That all is exposed before him. And so let me give you a helpful tip now as we move, move on and as we continue to study Revelation from this point on. 
Alistair Begg tells us that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. All right? The main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. So we may not know exactly what these creatures are and they may be bizarre, but we do know what they do and that's the main thing. Okay? So look at verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. So the main plain thing is that these creatures worship. Day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. This is called the trisagion. It means three times holy. Never once in the Bible does it say that God is love, 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 or never does it say that he is wrath, 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 but it does tell us over and over and over that he is holy, holy, holy. A lot of people leave church because they say it's boring. It wouldn't be if they just understand that this is who you are worshiping every time you come in these doors that you're worshiping a God who is above you, a God who is beyond your wildest imagination, a God who is holy, 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 a God who always has been. He has always existed. There's never been a time before he didn't exist. He is a God who always has been. He currently exists and reigns and rules. Right now, what we're reading is happening in heaven. This is currently going on, and he is a God who always will be. There'll never be a time where he doesn't exist. He's coming back one day. And so these creatures get that and they never stop praising God. But, but not only these creatures, look what the 24 elders do. It says that the 24 elders fall at his feet. They take their crowns off and they throw them at his feet and they worship him. And they worship him saying, worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Right? These elders aren't up there going, hey, I made it. White robe, golden crown, right? I just get to sit here on my blessed assurance all day and do nothing. No, they stand up and they worship. The word for worship in verse 10, it means to fall prostrate at someone's feet. So there's two stages to what they're doing. They fall down and worship. They get up and they fall down again. So it's as if they stand up, they come into their senses and go, Oh my gosh, right? I guess you could say that in his presence. I don't know. Oh my. Okay? They see the beauty and glory of God Almighty and then they fall back down again. That's all you can do in the presence of this God. So they do this over and over. Stand up, oh, fall down, worship. Stand up, fall down, worship. Stand up, fall down, worship. They do this day and night. They're doing this right now. And they do this because when you come into the presence of the almighty creator God of the universe who controls all of history, you can't help but worship. You're not concerned with what others think, Baptists. Right? Clench my fist tighter. Grip the pew a little harder. 
We're so worried about what everybody else thinks. Even if you want to lift your hands, you're just like, not going to happen. Not going to happen. You will talk about me at school on Sunday, Monday. They can't help but worship. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8? He said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says, I count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, I don't care about anything else other than worshiping him and knowing him. And I could care less about what others think when I come into his presence. What about David in the Old Testament? Remember that story? They bring the Ark of the Covenant back in, into, is, into Jerusalem. And what does David do? Right? Homeboy gets out there, takes his clothes off, and he starts dancing in front of that thing. Right? And he's worshiping and he's praising the fact that, 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 that the presence of God is coming back into Israel. And you remember he goes back to his room. And what does his wife do? She chastises him. Says, you made a fool of yourself. And he looks at her and says, woman, I'll become even more undignified than this. In other words, I don't care. When I'm in the presence of God, I will worship and I will praise. And this last phrase, I, I love this last phrase. In verse 11, it says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, right? This is what the elders are saying, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And, and, and so it's an odd phrasing, right? By your will, they existed and they were created. But, but it's comforting because what it means is that God is right now preserving the creative order. Like, like the only reason you don't disintegrate and fall apart, the only reason, right, that, that the world doesn't just burn up, right, is not global warming, is because God's not allowing it to do that right now. That he's holding the whole thing together. Colossians would say he holds it together by the word of his mouth. So it's a reminder to you and to me, and remember, written to them for us, it's a reminder to these churches that God has not retired from his throne. He's initiated history, and he's still very much in charge of history, and so that means as his people, we must trust that even when we experience suffering, and we will, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If you haven't, just hold on, it's coming. You will go through difficulty. But when you do, you can rest assured that this God has a redemptive purpose in your suffering and that it's according to his will and that he has ordained all that we go through and that he's sitting on a throne and in heaven it's calm and he's not worried about a thing and he will take care of you. Now, what do you do with all this, right? Cool story, Byron. Awesome. Let's go eat. Because, I mean, I don't, I don't get, Byron. I mean, seriously, how does God on his throne help me with my daily walk with Christ and my struggle with sin? Like, like how does that work? Well, let's look at it this way. The word worship is a transitive verb, okay? I had to look that up. Okay, don't worry. I'll tell you what it is. A transitive verb means that it must have a direct object. So in order to worship, there must be an object that we're worshiping. So what that means is as a human being, you are a worshiper. I am a worshiper. We will all worship someone or something. We all worship. The word worship is an old English word and it actually means worth-ship, right? So in other words, since we're all worshipers and we all worship someone or something, the someone or something that we're worshiping is someone or something that we think has worth. 
And the thing that we worship is something that we want to proclaim its worth. We want to proclaim it to others. So we're all worshiping someone or something that we believe has worth. And the problem is, is that many of us are worshiping the wrong things. Many of us are worshiping the wrong things. So what did we say at the beginning? The, the number one thing that we worship is ourselves. All of our life exists for us. It exists for our comfort, for our pleasure. It exists for others to serve us. Me, 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 me is the number one God of our age. We worship the self. Many of us worship money. And our life is a pursuit of how to get more. And again, it's not that money's bad. Money's not. But when money takes a hold of us and it controls us, then money's become a God and it becomes something that we worship. Many of us worship the stuff that we have that we get because of money, right? The things that we own, the trinkets and the toys that we continue to buy, even if we can't afford them, we're gonna continue to just rack it up, baby, because that's what life is about is having the most stuff. A lot of us, and we've talked about this before, worship comfort. I know I do. We've said this before, but 2020 exposed that, didn't it? And even though we had it easy up here compared to a lot of other places, boy, we sure griped and complained a lot, didn't we? I know I did. Still do. I like to be comfortable. What about politics? We still worshiping that? We got off that train yet? I get it. 2020 didn't go the way we wanted it to, but, but, but instead of letting that go and trusting the sovereign Lord who's sitting on a throne in front of a calm sea of glass, we've decided to chase after conspiracy theories, haven't we? Well, don't worry, man. They're, they're all doing this in a Hollywood studio somewhere. None of this is real. March 3rd, he's going to be inaugurated. That's the real inauguration day, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Second Corinthians chapter four, Paul would tell us that we spend so much time worshiping the things that we can see. And what does he tell us in Second Corinthians four? That the things that we can see are transient. In other words, it means that they're fleeting. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. They will never bring you the satisfaction that you're looking for. And Paul says that the answer is the key is to instead worship the things that we can't see, the things that are eternal, the things that never go away. And so we just read about a God who was and is and is to come. A God who will never let us down. See, this passage in Revelation 4 and in Revelation 5 is to give you a picture of who God is so that you will leave here in awe of God, not in awe of something else. See, people who stand in awe of God, they find sin a lot less appealing. When you see God for who he is and for what he's promised, it becomes a lot easier to worship him instead of worshiping the things that we pursue. It's a lot harder for sin to trick you. People who are in awe of Christ don't find this world appealing, but much like Paul, they say, I consider it a loss, I consider it garbage compared to knowing him. See, seeing God for who he is changes you. So suddenly when you see him on his throne, all of a sudden life doesn't become about you anymore. It's not all about how I can make myself happy or how others can serve me. Instead, it's how can I give myself away for others? How can I lay down my life to serve and to care for others? How can I make sure that they get the gospel? Right? Money becomes something that you begin to hold freely and give away. You begin to give to missionaries. You begin to give to your church. You begin to give to those who are in need. It's not something that you hold on to that you use for your own selfish ends. 
Your stuff is given to you to bless others. It doesn't become something that you just hold on to so that you can die with the most toys. No, it's something that you use. You realize that comfort isn't really that important. That if our savior could step down out of heaven and be homeless and die bleeding and naked on a cross, then our comfort really isn't that big a deal. And then we finally realize that politics is a dead end street and it ain't gonna get us anywhere. That we're gonna continue to put our hope in a bunch of sinful human beings instead of the Lord who is in control of everything. See, this is why this passage is important because seeing God for who he is, it changes your outlook on everything. But check this out too. This passage is also here to show us how one day you and I can enter into this place of worship, how we can do that. So go back to the beginning of the Bible. After Adam and Eve sinned and God kicked them out of the garden, if you remember, God sent an angel to guard the way back into God's presence. An angel with a flaming sword that says, hey, this is where God dwells, but because of your sin, you can no longer come in here. And in Genesis chapter three, verse 24, he says he drove out the man and at the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim. Now, real quick, that's not a fat, chubby, cute little baby angel, okay? Um, this week, I was studying that, and I typed in cherubim, and I went, that is, there's no, I could have got past that thing, right? That's, that's not what he meant, all right? That's not what a cherubim is, all right? You, you're thinking like big, you know, eight, right? And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, hey, it's wonderful to be with me, but because of your sin, you can't come in here anymore. Flash forward to when the temple was built, what did they do? They had this place called the Holy of Holies where God's glory dwelled. And if you remember, there was this giant curtain that went around the Holy of Holies. Well, I don't know if any of you have ever read this, but do you know what was sewn onto that curtain? Cherubim, angels with swords. It was, it was a reminder to them that, hey, it's great to be with God, but because of sin, you can't come in here. You can't come past this point. It's what kept, the, the kept them from God's holiness. And so because of Adam and his sin, you and I cannot go into his presence. So when you come to this passage, you go, well, how can we ever hope to be with the Lord one day? How can we ever hope to experience this scene? And so the answer for you this morning, it's not to try harder, right? It's not to leave here to, to do more good works and say, I really am gonna mean it this time, God. No, no, the answer for us is the same as John. Look at chapter one, chapter four, verse one. What does it say? John only enters God's presence when Jesus calls him. Come up here, John. And then John enters into the presence of Jesus. So today, Jesus is calling each and every one of us in this room to come to the cross where his blood was spilt so that we could be made right with God. Jesus calls all of us to come to the empty tomb where his resurrection provides conquering life for those who believe. And listen, Jesus calls you and I to look to heaven and see what is ours if we come to God through faith in Christ alone. Christ has promised all of us who trust in him white garments, crowns, and thrones for all who answer that call. So if you don't know Jesus today, would you answer that call? Don't leave here without answering him. And then Christian, look at me. I hope you leave here with a bigger picture of God than when you came in this room. I pray that we can become a people that would worship, a people that would give ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord, not concerned with what others think about us, but that we would just sing to him 
that we would live our lives knowing that there's one bigger than us. And that no matter how chaotic or crazy this world gets, and it's going to, buckle up, he's still on his throne, he's not retired. And that we can continue to worship him through all the chaos and through whatever comes our way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for this just, what is a beautiful passage of scripture. Father, I thank you that you are on your throne. And in heaven, no matter how chaotic this earth looks, it's calm. Because you've already won. And you know the outcome. So I pray today for the believers in this room, for those who have already come to faith uh, in Christ, that today as we get ready to stand and sing, that, that we would lift our voices and sing with all of our heart to our Lord. To the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, who has done what we could not do through his life, through his death and his resurrection, that he's created a place for us. And so that Father, one day, that we will be in your presence, clothed in white, wearing crowns, worshiping you day and night. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, I pray today that you would help them to see that it's wonderful to be with you, but because of sin, we can't come in. But because of what Jesus has done and shedding his blood to cover our sins, through his death, Father, which shows us that he has defeated Satan, that he's broken death, that, Father, because of that, we can be made right with you. And it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. And so I pray today they would trust in Jesus. Thank you for each and every person that's here today. Be with us now as we stand and as we sing to our Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand.